At first glance, you wouldn't think that my two guests and what they represent would have much in common this week. One is an up-and-coming middle-distance runner, fresh off an impressive silver medal performance at the FISU Games, ready to take on the ones she's looked up to on the grandest of all stages. And the other one is a representative for the biggest beer mile spectacular the world has ever seen. Now, sure, there are the obvious connectors, like running, but still, one would think, not a whole lot there. If I had to draw some sort of connection between the two, though, it would probably be this. Between the two, there is still so much unrealized potential. Gabriella Stafford currently has a running world right where she wants it. She's young, she's already putting down world-class times, and she's still improving year by year. On the other hand, the World Beer Mile Classic, not even in its first running, has already attracted the likes of ESPN as well as most of the world's top beer milers. If I had to guess, world records will fall at this event, and we're just witnessing a fraction of the attention that this will receive in the coming weeks. So, this week on the Terminal Mile, it's all about the big things still to come. You're listening to the Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. You're listening to the Terminal Mile at the Terminal Mile on Twitter and heard worldwide via Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, and Tracky.ca. Well, it would be fair to say that women's CIS track and cross hasn't, through no fault of the athletes, historically received the fawning over that its men's counterpart has gotten. That may just be a thing of the past. The ladies of the CIS right now are bringing it, producing world-class athletes with world-class results and times, and leading the charge is U of T's Gabriella Stafford. Gabriella is freshly home from a stunning second-place finish in the 1500 meter at the FISU Games where she faced some of the best university athletes in the world, capping off a season where she went sub-407 in the same distance. Welcome to the show, Gabriella. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with that. At 1500 meter night in London this year, you faced off against teammate Sasha Golish and fellow Canadian Nicole Cifuentes, both Pan American medalists, and held on to go under 407 for the first time in your running career. Now, I was on the other end of the track, but I could see the hands go up as soon as you crossed the line. Uh, a month out from that race, and what has it meant for you and your confidence in racing that distance? Yeah, that was a that was a pretty exciting race. Um, it was super satisfying because both my coach Terry and I knew that I was fit enough to run at least sub 410. You know, we thought maybe, hopefully, if like everything went perfectly, I could go 408. Um, but I hadn't done that yet. And, uh, you know, I knew I was a lot fitter than I was, uh, in May when I ran at Mount Sac where I ran 411, but I since then had run 411 two more times. So I'd run 411 three times in the season. And then I ran a 432 mile, which is like a 412 equivalent, I think. Um, so I really wanted to break 410 and I didn't even think I was going to race at 1500 meter night. But, you know, I told Terry, I was like, Nicole Sifuentes is racing. Like, this could be it. This could be when I finally break 410. Um, and it was just so satisfying when I finally did it. You know, I not only did I break 410, but I went 407, which is quite a bit under. Because um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it doesn't matter what you're fit enough to run. You don't run, you know, you don't run what you're fit enough to run until you run it. Like, nothing's set until it's done, right? So it was just so awesome to finally get that goal and check it off the list. Um, and more than that, it like immediately running 407 also put me in metal contention for FISU. Um, in the past, it's been, FISU has been won in like 405. So I knew running 407 put me in the mix. So that was huge too. Um, and 
more than that, I'm no longer running for a seven, like maybe no longer just like a first year senior making a transition, uh, you know, going from being a junior athlete to racing against the big guns, <laughs> you know, running for a seven put me in it to be competitive with the top women in Canada, which is, which is huge. Like, you know, I'm only 19 and I'm already, you know, in a place where I can run against my idol. Sheila Reed and Kate Van Busker, Hillary Stellingworth, Nicole Sifuentes, like it's, you know, obviously Sasha Golish, mm. <laughs> um, who's my teammate, but it's just, it was just crazy that I, you know, I always idolize those women and I'm now like right there with them. And it's just, yeah. So it's been running that race is giving me huge confidence in, in this distance and to be competitive on the Canadian scene in general. Well, fast forward to uh, last month's FISU Games, where you faced some of the best university athletes in the world in the 1500 meter. From the viewpoint of someone watching back the video, uh, it was a very smart race with you sticking to the rail, staying fairly close to the front through a lot of that slower race. Given the depth of the field and how that race was shaping up during the first 1200, how confident were you in your kick going into that? Were you confident that it could get you that spot on the podium going into it? Uh, yeah, I was, I was pretty confident. Um... I think I actually, you know, originally I didn't think the Uganda was going to be in the race because she didn't run the heats. But when I saw her on the start list, I kind of, I don't know why, even though she ran 418, I kind of knew that she would be in contention for some reason. Um, and then there was a Russian who had a PB of four minutes, but hadn't run faster than 415, I think, that year. Um, and I was the fastest seed time with 407 uh, for seasonal best-wise. So... You know, that was a lot of pressure, um, but also a good confidence booster. And uh, so I was pretty confident. But given the wind, I knew that it was going to be super tactical. Uh, and I worried that because it was going to be tactical, I was worried about letting so many girls, like leaving so many girls in the mix until the, until the last bit of the race. Because it doesn't matter if you're a 407 girl. A 418 girl can have a hell of a kick and outkick you in the last bit, right? So, um but Carice and I talked to Lynn Kanuka, who's the 1,500-meter Canadian record holder uh, and was the middle-distance coach at FISU. And, you know, she told us that with the wind, it's the strongest, not the fastest, girls who will win, you know. So that gave me some comfort and confidence that, you know, the 407 will give me strength. And Carice and I both raced cross-country in Newfoundland with 100-kilometer winds. So <laughs> we were totally at ease with it, even though we were on the edge of a monsoon. Um, and so knowing that I was strong, like gave me some comfort and confidence in that last 300 that with the wind at my back, once I saw an opening, um, you know, I made my move and just went for it. And, you know, things just kind of unraveled once, you, once you get going and you have that confidence and you don't doubt yourself, you just, you just start picking off the girls and every girl you pass, you know, that like, I just knew that I had it in me to get that medal. So yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> For sure. Well, the 1500 is such an interesting beast in that it can really go any number of ways as far as how the race plays out. How did you and your coach prepare for this race, given the you know huge variance of strategies employed typically in the distance? Uh, honestly, Terry and I talk about uh, different race strategies a little bit, but usually we kind of have like our typical pep talk and it'll go something like you know run to win get out well don't get boxed in and if you do stay patient wait for an opening and get out and then kick like hell you know the plan's always the same uh 
so we don't usually have a super lengthy meeting to talk like race strategies because you can't really predict how the race will run. You know, if it goes out really fast, then you stick with the leaders and you hang on for dear life and kick like hell at the end. And if it goes out slow, you stick with the leaders and hang on and kick like hell. You know, it's like the race is always, the strategy is always the same. Um, the important thing, because you can't predict how the race will be run, is you just have to be present in the race and respond to the moves and trust your instincts. Um, you know, Terry will send me some pump up, like some pump up emails which get me, you know, pretty psyched. And they also comfort me at the same time because he'll tell me, you know, you're ready. You've been working for this. Um, you know, you know what to do. But after that, I'm on my own. You know, when you're standing on the start line, doesn't matter how many people have helped you along the way. It's all up to you. And it's, you know, it's a pretty lonely feeling. But, you know, you, you just learn to trust your instincts in the race. And, and uh, yeah, and you'll, I just know that I'll always do my best. So just trust my instincts, really. Now, at this point, you've raced in a few international competitions. How did Fisu rank against, say, the World Juniors as far as competition goes? And did your participation in those past meets have any effect on how you raced at the Fisu Games? Uh, yeah, it's it's been great having so many uh, national team experiences. I'm definitely super blessed to have, you know, I think I made a national team every year since grade 12, and that's awesome. Um I think FISU and World Juniors were pretty similar as far as like level of competition goes. Um, the depth was very similar, but we didn't really have any crazy sub four minute Ethiopian FISU. Uh, so maybe the top end of World Juniors was slightly higher. Um, but I think the depth was pretty similar. Uh, and, you know, participating in like World Juniors and Pan Am Juniors and World Cross Country, all those participation past uh, national teams gave me a lot of confidence going into FISU. You know, it's always an honor to represent your country. You know, holding the flag above my head after I won that silver medal will be, you know, one of my most cherished memories um, because you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you're representing your country, not just you. Um, but at the same time, it's still you who's running out there. Um, and the more times you can, like, compete internationally, you kind of forget about the pressure of representing Canada. Well, like, you don't really forget, but you just don't let it bother you anymore. Um, you kind of just focus on being yourself and knowing that it's still you who's running out there. And I've realized that it's just another race. You know, there's nothing different about running a 1500 meter at FISU than at 1500 meter night. It's the same three and three quarter laps. You know, I remember at uh, World Juniors, uh, I told Terry I was worried about choking. And he looked at me and he said, like, why would you even think that? And it's true that that whole year I'd been consistent. So like, why wouldn't I run well at worlds? Um, so I've just learned to trust myself and to trust that no matter what, I'll always, you know, do my best on the day. And I think that's what made me so successful at international meets. Um, you know, I wasn't nearly as nervous before FISU because I felt so prepared. I'd been running well all year and it didn't matter what I was dealing with in my personal life you know, I'd always been able to put that aside and run a good race no matter the time of year. And I've been through a lot this year. Um, so I knew that I'd do the same at BSU. And uh, so just knowing that it's another race and it's just still 1,500 meters, you know, we've done it so many times before. Well, switching well, gears switching. just a little bit, uh, as you're aware, there were some rumors about you chasing glory down in the NCAA next year, which you later cleared up. I'm sure the temptation must be strong, but what ultimately kept you with Toronto and the CIS system? 
that's not a hard question to answer or really to explain, I guess. So bear with me as I try to. Um, I'd have to say the pivotal moment for me where I realized that I was meant to be in Toronto was 1,500-meter night. Because uh, before that race, I thought I was going to go to Stanford. I really did, but I don't know. Something after the race, like, switched uh, within me. Or, like, that, not I, switch isn't really the right word because I think I knew all along what I really wanted, like, at least subconsciously, but I just hadn't admitted it to myself yet. Uh, so I think changed is the better word. Um, and I don't really know why or how I had this realization, but I think running for a seven definitely helped. But I just remember talking to my dad about the race and it, I just had this moment of clarity and I just knew that I wanted to be in Toronto. It was really strange. Like the whole process of how people make decisions is so interesting, <laughs> but cause it seemed like overnight I went from wanting to go to Stanford, but still feeling like, uh, like still feeling like I needed to justify why I wanted to go to Stanford, I guess. Like I still had this cloud of confusion around me and it went from that state to something completely different, uh, like to a state of utter clarity where I just knew that I wanted to be in Toronto. And if someone asked me why I wanted to be in Toronto, I didn't feel this need to explain myself anymore, like weigh pros and cons or whatever. Like I just say like, I know this is what I want. And I finally felt like settled and at peace and, like not pan like panicked or anxious about it all. And it just didn't freak me out. And that kind of stunned me that I was ready to say no to Stanford and it didn't bug me. And yeah, it was, it was really weird, but you know, like you could rationalize the decision either way. There are so many good reasons why I would have gone to Stanford and so many good reasons why to stay at U of T. So if you go with your head, it's no, there's no clear winner. And that's why I decided to spend a lot of time like listening to my gut. Um, and the uncertainty of going through this process has been incredibly stressful, but I don't have any regrets because in the end, I've gotten to this place of unquestionable clarity that U of T is the place where I will turn my craziest dreams into attainable goals that I will accomplish. Um, and I finally feel at peace. And in the end, that's the only thing I wanted. I didn't like, I just wanted to make a decision that I knew was right. Well, I mean, like you, you raise a lot of good points there. And on the topic of your Toronto club, both your club and your university team have seen a ton of success recently. Uh, I mean, like with your CIS indoor banner coming your way this year, the team banner. And as you've mentioned before, the rise of Sasha Gaulish, uh, you know, Rachel Hanna also does some stuff there. I understand a little in the, in the off times and stuff, uh, mm -hmm. but she also had a very strong showing at Pan Am's. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's it's just been uh you know a really exciting club to watch and an exciting university team to watch as well. If you had to guess, what would you say is making U of T so successful right now? Yeah, thanks. Like I honestly think, and I'm not being biased here because I was looking elsewhere. Like I honestly think the middle distance program at U of T is one of the best, if not the best, program in North America right now. You know, like we have 11 girls running under 210 for 800, and a handful more like hovering around that barrier and. You know, this this group extends from high school to university um, to post, like, you know, post-collegiate. Um, and I think, and I don't need to guess about why we're so successful. You know, the coaches at U of T are super development focused and they treat each athlete individually. 
you know, I've been with Terry since grade 10. Um, and I've, he's transformed me from a 509 1500 meter runner to a 407 1500 meter runner. Um, like in a matter of like, I guess four, four years, four or five years. Um, you know, and that's because every year, you know, we don't, we don't overtrain here every year. We just add on a little bit more. We do like a couple things differently. They're always focused about your development and making sure that you're not overtraining so that every year you can build and get faster and faster. And that's the way to do it, you know? Um, and that's why you see, you know, that's why I PB'd every year because, um, they're really, they're really interested in making sure that they don't rush things, um, and that they're cautious and that, you know, they develop me and train me so that I'm not running my fastest in high school or university. I'm running my fastest, you know, after university, like four years from now. Um, and that I can stay there for a good amount of time. You know, I want to have a long, healthy career. So I think this development focused way that they look at training is why we're so successful. Yeah. They figure what's best for you. Like that's the core of their training philosophy. And you develop a really close relationship with the coaches and the other athletes, which is super important. You know, like Terry's like a second dad to me almost. And how always having me at him at my back is awesome. Um, and it's also a really inspiring atmosphere. Uh, you know, I've grown so much in this program and, you know, they really, they really teach you to just like dream limitless, limitlessly, you know, um, I never, when I was in grade 10 and just starting out, I never thought that I'd ever be on a national team. And I've just learned as I've grown there that, you know, you know, I can dream bigger. I can always like go bigger and like, you know, why not try? And that kind of atmosphere to be a part of, it's just, it's such an awesome and healthy place to live, study and train. And, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's why we're so successful right now. Well, I realize you're on a bit of a, on a bit of a break right now. Well, you should yeah. be coming <laughs> off of that. Uh, but looking ahead to September, We'll bring on the uh, a brand new season of cross country. Last year at the OUA Championships in Kingston, you came in a very, very close second, uh, just a fraction of a second behind uh, Guelph's Heather Petrick. Are you the type of competitor that would use that as motivation for this upcoming season, or do you simply put it behind you as soon as you take off the spikes? Um, I think I don't really like use defeats as fuel, I guess. So I wouldn't say that like I, you know, pocket, you know, my losses and use that as motivation, but I don't really see that race as like a defeat either because I gave everything I had in that race and Heather just, she just was stronger in the end. You know, I collapsed before the finish line and there's nothing you can do about that. And so I think, I think, so I do take it with me and use it as motivation because I know after running that race that I will always give 110%. Um, you know, like, and I don't think that's, no one will defeat me that way. You know, I might lose, but you'll never defeat me because I will just always work harder and, and just give 110%. And so I use that as motivation because I don't really put it behind me because I know that I gave it my all. And knowing that I know that I'll do that the next time I race. So, so yeah, so I guess I do use, use it as motivation, but at the same time, I don't let the fact that she beat me, bother me. You know, mm -hmm. I got right back on the horse and I knew 
I was just as confident going into CIs. It didn't matter that I lost. And the NCIs was in a great race for me. But after OUAs, I was, you know, just as confident as before. Well, looking ahead to the next 12 months, they could be potentially very important to your career. Uh, as you mentioned, you've improved every year. What are the big goals for this next year? Um, it's really scary to say it out loud, but Rio 2016, <laughs> you know, I guess, you know, they say your dreams, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. So <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to go for it. What's, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I'm on the door to standard running. I ran 407 and, you know, I PB by at least five seconds over 1500 meters every year. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to go for it. Well, you know, that sounds like a fantastic goal and, and the way you're progressing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's looking pretty good. Just one last Thank question you. for you touching, uh, back briefly on that FISU race. Uh, I have to give props where they are due with one of the meanest race faces out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your opinion, who has the top three race faces in the sport right now? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, I'd have to say, uh, my teammate honor Wamsley has a hell of race face. If you look behind you uh, or if you look beside you when she's next to you in the last 150 meters in a race, you will she'll beat you because you'll just like stop down your tracks because she's so scary. <laughs> um, so she has a hell of a race face. Rachel Hanna also has a pretty good race face, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Somerset Jarvis, who's also my teammate, she's coming into first year U of T this year. Um, she... She has the cutest race face because she's such a bubbly person. And I guess even in the race, it'll show because instead of grimacing, she'll smile. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> so, so she's just working her butt out, butt off out there and she's just smiling away. It's the funniest thing. So, yeah. Well, that could actually be potentially more scary than uh, grimacing or frowning at you or scowling at you. No, I- uh, Kill them with kindness is what they say, I guess. I guess so. Yeah, she definitely does that. <laughs> Gabriella Stafford is part of the U of T track club as well as university team. She is also the FISU silver medalist in the 1500 meters. Thanks a lot for being on the show today, Gabriella. Thank you so much for having me. The Beer Mile has come a long ways from its humble beginnings from up here in Canada. From a challenge between buddies to an underground running movement to a point now where international competitions are attracting the eyes and ears of the mainstream media. One of those competitions is the World Beer Mile Classic and it is happening August 22nd in San Francisco and has brought together the best elite field of beer milers the world has ever seen. With a top-notch crew of Canucks ready to roll all over the competition, joining us is Nick McFalls, one of the organizers of the event. Welcome to the show, Nick. Oh, hey, thank you, Michael. Uh, great to be on. Now, right off the top, what everyone who follows the sport wants to know is there's been talk since uh, James Nielsen's set the record just a few years ago that it wasn't done legally according to the Kingston rules. He's on your list ready to perform. Do you think this event will finally put the trash talk to bed? I don't know. I think like the trash talk is uh, inherent in all beer miles, so I'm sure someone will have something to complain about. But uh, I think from, from James' point of view, you know, he's uh, going out, he's invited every beer miler. We found ways to fly, fly them all in, and everyone that can be here will be on the line. And uh, I think he's excited to, to kind of put some of those rumors to rest and uh, really show how, how quickly he can drink. You know, at this point, there have been a few top-notch beer mile uh, meets in the world, but I think that you guys may have the claim to the deepest field of uh, beer milers thus far. 
Now, run down the list for me. Who are the big names that you've managed to secure? Well, I think, uh, you know, whenever, whenever I think of go down our list, I always have to think of the emails that we write. I always go by kind of country. But uh, if we talk about the top guys from each country, we obviously have the Beast, uh, who's the world record holder. And I, I think, you know, everyone kind of wants to knock him down. I think to, to feel like... Uh, to feel like they're the best person, the best field model in the world, you kind of have to take it on the king. And I think that's, I, I think one of the reasons that we were able to attract such a, such a top field. So I, I think, um, getting the Australians to come was, was kind of a very big deal. And, and originally, like we had, um, Josh Harris, who was, um, the, the prior world record and, and, uh, Harris broke Jim Finlayson's world record and Nelson broke his. And, and he was kind of racing. James to be the, the first person under five minutes. Now he's run 501, uh, 501 mid, and that necess- that hasn't really hit PureMile.com yet. But um, he's number three all time, and uh, I think he's definitely looking to run really fast. I, I mean, he was talking some of the times he was talking were shockingly fast and well under the world record. Uh, the other world record holder um, in the field, or prior world record holder, is Jim Finlayson. And from just talking to him, he's as uh, fit as he's ever been. And one of the questions that I asked when we spoke, you know, do you think you can run under the time, uh, the 509 that you ran when that was the world record? And uh, he thinks that's a definite possibility. And that's what, you know, Canada definitely needs, uh, you know, Jim to run fast, Uh Obviously, like one of the people not in the race is Corey Gallagher, and we, we can talk about that later. But his shoes have been kind of filled by um, Lewis, Kent, Lewis Kent, and Lewis has the three fastest times in the world this year, and he's been continually improving. And I think he's a definite threat for, for the individual title just because of his consistency. Uh, he seems like you know he uh, to be the best drinker there like his drinks are just so clean there's really nothing to complain about there's no worry about a disqualification uh whereas you know some like some of josh harris's races he's been inconsistent um but we've seen a consistency with lewis and so i feel pretty comfortable that he'll probably be in the top three um and uh, i think there's some other guys outside of the world record holders and lewis that that really feel that they're going to be in the mix. And I think we have five or six guys talking sub five minutes, uh, Michael Cunningham and Brian, Brian Anderson, uh, you know, they feel like they're going to be in the mix. And I think from an American standpoint, you know, we we're talking about the individuals. Ultimately, this is a team competition. Uh, I think the Americans feel pretty good about their chances of, you know, taking some of the Kingston cup for the men. Now, when we talk about the women, uh, you know, we, we don't have, uh, world record holder Liz Herndon, unfortunately. She's working and she's in Europe. But we have, uh, the second and third and fifth fastest women of all time. Uh, we have Andrea Fisher, who, uh, ran 628. And, uh, Chris Kimbrough, who, who broke Shauna Robinson's world record. And Shauna, Shauna had the world record for 17 years. And she was, you know, the reason they used to have, uh, Three beers for the women, and I think like the reason it's still for like Shauna was like the big proponent that women should drink for it shouldn't be any different uh, than the men. But uh, Shauna's looking good yet, you know, still for the title. And I think the competition between like Shauna, Chris, and Andrea is going to be tight. But I would have to say if, if I had an opinion on who's who the favorite going in is, I would say 
it's Andrea Fisher, and I, I think uh, you know she's uh, you know probably I'd say one of the best drinkers in the field, and uh, you know she ran really well in the flow track competition. Well, see, so you touched on it. But what sets you apart from perhaps a lot of the other competitions that have been out there is that there is a team component uh, with a few nations actually being able to field enough people for an entire team. Explain to me how the scoring works and talk to me about which countries will be represented and, uh, you know, how much better is the Canadian team than everyone else? How much better? Did you say how much better the Canadian team is than everyone else? I don't don't think I'm going to go go that far or even maybe even say that oh i will uh okay um basically you know i I think uh the scoring is cross-country scoring and we're gonna uh we're gonna score uh three people so you know if if the winner gets one point uh you know 10th place gets 10 uh lowest score wins so i think what the teams are competing for uh are the Kingston Cup and the and the uh, the Queen's Cup, and it's that's just basically a nod to the founders of the sport. Uh, you know, obviously uh, Queen's University is in Kingston, and so we got some really sweet uh, uh, you know cups for the champions, and and that's going to be something that they're going to be able to bring back home, kind of like like the Stanley Cup or the Grey Cup or or something like that. You know, one of the things that we've been telling the athletes is you're going to be able to bring this home, bring it to your favorite bar. Uh, and, and drink with your friends and kind of celebrate. And so, as, as far as you know, I told the American team that it's not going to leave the, the country. Uh, you know, John Markle is, is convinced that both are going back to Canada, um, but I, I just don't, I just don't see that happening. I, I think um, I, can't, I just can't foresee it happening. Like it's, it's, the cups are staying in the U.S. and you guys will have the naming rights, but uh, the hardware will stay here this year. Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll see. Uh, switching gears a little bit, a very important part of every beer mile is, of course, the beer. Uh, what kind of beer do you guys plan on having for the racers, and will they be able to su- supply their own? Uh, the, the elites are supplying their own, and uh, you know we're kind of uh, working out the details of what we're gonna, uh, you know, for our sub elite fields uh, and our, um, you know, our community races. But uh, you know, everyone has their favorite beer and so we didn't want to really change that so they should be you know the athletes should be able to compete with what they with you know what kind of got them here and so the kingston rules are pretty broad you know it just has to be over five percent and um you know so that's kind of what we're that's kind of what we're aiming for is that the athletes are comfortable and they're not really changing anything well you see this event has uh, received a ton of press including from espn uh however the roots and the vast majority of beer mile events are very much underground, uh, almost sort of culty sort of affairs. Have you made any attempts to stay true to the origins of the event, if you will? Well, you know, I, I kind of ran my first beer miles, like our track club, West Valley Track Club, hosts two beer miles every year, and they're they're pretty low key affairs. So um, I think, but they're they're also getting really competitive. And so, for instance, like last place. Like I think it was like 10 or 15th place in our last year mile was like 7:46. So I think like John kind of brought all of that, uh, you know, to West Valley and to San Francisco, and we have several clubs that we kind of compete against. So I think like we do stay true to the rules. No one drinks from bottles at ours, uh, you know, and, and uh, so so yeah, like staying true to the rules was one of the important things. Is you know when we talk about the public event that we're doing. You know, having John as kind of like like our beacon, making sure that like we're staying true to it, 
uh, part of the appeal of our race is just like, you know, we have the founders there. And, uh, you know, and also, you know, one of the guys that, you know, was the first under five minutes. So I think the combination of that, just trying to stay true to that is kind of important to us. Now, you are one of the organizers of the event, and a huge part of that planning stage is, you know, raising money so that you can bring the athletes in. Uh, not so much for you in this case, but for the athletes traveling from out of country. Uh, you know, if someone wants to help out the athletes going in, how can they do so? Well, you know, I think um, we, we've picked up a lot of the costs for the athletes as far as, uh, you know, building in place. There, there's a, a little bit they, they need to raise on their own. So, um, you know, I think one of our goals is that in the future that you know, athlete travel is self-sustaining. You know, the Canadian Beer Mile team is able to, you know, raise the funds to send, you know, five to ten athletes, you know, to wherever, to wherever we host it. And so uh, we're not really concerned about, you know, this year how much money they raise, but we're, we're trying to create, uh, you know, plant the seeds that, that um, you know, they're, they have ownership of it. And so uh, we have a T-shirt that we're selling on Teespring. It's just a Canadian, um, it's a Canadian Beer Mile T-shirt. And one of the uh, ideas behind that is that eventually, you know, we have six rings that, that kind of represent a six-pack, but... Uh, you know, eventually we want the athletes to be able to seek out their own sponsorships within those rings, you know, for their own beer, for their own bar, uh, that allow them to kind of brand themselves. And uh, uh, so, but the first uh, the first T-shirt is on sale now, and uh, it's on Teespring. If you just look up, you know, Canada Beer Mile Team, you'll be able to find that. And, and Teespring spells T-E-E-S-P-R-I-N-G. And uh, it was designed uh, by Phil Parrott-Migas, and... He's one of the athletes uh, on the Canadian team. And we have an American Beer Mile shirt as well for, for those who are so inclined. That was uh, developed and designed by Michael Cunningham, our, our number two runner. Um, we, and uh, Canada also has like a, you know, a fundraising platform, Make a Champ, where some of the athletes are raising a little money to offset some of their costs. You can find them at Classic Beer Mile on Twitter. Uh, reigning world champion, Corey Yalger, uh, he's had a bit of a rough go lately as far as injuries go, uh, so he won't be in attendance. How much do you think that this will actually hurt our Canadian team, and uh, do you think that Lewis is, is ready to step up into his void? Well, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big loss. I mean, when you have uh, you know only three people scoring, and you know, I really couldn't have foreseen you know, uh, Corey finishing outside of the top four, uh, potentially winning the race. So losing that, you know, losing someone who's competed well in the only, you know, in the only real uh, competitive beer mile that I've seen, uh, it's a huge loss. But, um, but, I, but I think it's something that that the Canadians can overcome. And you know, I I, I always like to talk a little smack about about the Americans, but but I, I would not be surprised, you know, if, if the Canadians uh, won this won this race because, like, you know, we've seen Lewis step up and he's run, you know, uh, within a, a second and a half of what, you know, Corey's PR is. Uh, you know, we know that Simmonson's running better than than, uh, than he was in December, and he's solid, he's consistent. And so I think having those, those two guys uh, just kind of, uh, you know, being so consistent, uh, it, you know, puts a little bit of pressure on Jeff um, and Phil, to kind of, you know, like I think the, the championship uh, in, in some ways uh, going to come down to how, how those guys race and, and just getting a little bit faster 
and you know how they match up against our third and fourth because I think it's going to be really tight up front. Um, I don't think the Australians are, are, are necessarily um, going to, you know, uh, they're, they're a little bit less of a factor, but um, they, they, they had a loss. We, they had James Hansen, who um, he ran 456, but his record wasn't ratified. There was just a lot of spillage. But um, he decided to concentrate some of the gear, and he decided to concentrate on training. So that was a huge loss for them because I, I think if he had been in there and Corey had been in there, we had done the scoring, and it, 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 when we added the top three times up, it, you know, there was only like a second or two difference between all the teams, and and that was before Lewis uh, had a big improvement. So I think like without Corey, the Canadians would have been prohibitive favorites. Uh, now they're slight underdogs, and I think without James Hansen, uh, the Australians are you know just didn't don't necessarily have the depth yet. But again, I think the beer mile is such a dynamic sport. People improve. We've, we've seen Lewis improve by 30 seconds. So. So like it's um, you know the potential for like uh, um, Charlie Blanche and um, and Kevin Craigie who are the other two Australians to come in and make significant improvements it could definitely happen so I think uh, you know we, we you know it originally started like all teams where it was it was really close but I think now the Americans are the favorite and I think it would be a great upset if the Canadians um, if Canadians could uh, could upset us now. I got to ask, are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? Because uh, we here at the Terminal Mile would like to propose a little bit of a bet. Uh, next time you set foot on Canadian soil, we will provide you with the uh, the finest brew that you can find up here. You said Sleeman's. We'll get you some yeah, Sleeman's. Yeah. But we'll we'll get lot, you some know, good I, stuff, too. The reason too. I picked Sleeman's is that that's Finlayson's uh, favorite. And he's actually, like, his friends are traveling down. Uh, from Victoria with his Lehman's that he's going to race with because, you know, just, uh, just getting it through. You, you can't buy it down here. So I may ask for the other two from his six-pack, but uh, definitely I'll hold, I'll hold you guys accountable and uh, uh, for that. And, so I, I, and I do collect on my bets. Okay. All right. I will hold you to that. And uh, when we win, sorry, when we win, if I ever uh, come down to San Francisco, I will be, you know I'll uh, I'll leave it up to you, just as long as it's not you know like Lakeport or something well, like that. Well, let me know your address, and uh, we'll, we may send something back with with one of the athletes. All right, when we win, when we win, gotcha. Now, uh, in the description uh, to this episode, you can find a link to everything mentioned so far, including their Twitter account uh, and a ton of other information, including how you can get uh, one of their really cool T-shirts. I've already ordered one. Uh, is there any other pieces of information that you'd like to put out there, maybe how people can watch this come time? Well, I know in the U.S., uh, you know, we have ESPN covering the event. We don't know necessarily know when exactly it's going to air or how it's going to air. Um, we're still working out the production details, but... We're excited that they're coming out and uh, showing faith, you know, faith in the sport. And they have to get some big fans there of the sport within ESPN, and, uh, especially Greg Garber, who did the, um, you know, the ESPN special feature that aired. So, uh, you know, he's just a big fan of the sport, and like, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I knew when it was going to air, but it, it's likely to air in the U.S. Um, the day after. But no guarantees on that. We'll, we'll, that's not in our control. So. Um, We'll let, we'll let you know as soon as we know when it, when they when they plan to put it on. Well, we'll definitely keep our eye out for that uh, for sure. It'll be a, a real proud moment for all of us when we watch the Canadians take the individual and the team titles. 
Uh, that'll be really special. The World Beer Mile Classic is happening uh, August 22nd in San Francisco. Uh, we're talking with Nick McFalls, one of the organizers. Thanks a lot for being on the show uh, this week, Nick. Oh, no problem. And good good luck to you, Canucks. Um, we'll show you the finest hospitality here. Um, and then we're going to kick your ass. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Big thanks to our guest, Gabriella Stafford, as well as Nick McFalls, and to Tracky for their ongoing support. Remember, you can find us via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Tracky.ca. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow the show at The Terminal Mile on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. Mm-hmm.